So, here's a rhetorical question. Where did you learn to pray? From whom did you learn to pray? Did your parents teach you how to pray? Your grandparents? Was it a friend? Were you ever, perhaps, maybe some of you in here never were taught to pray? Well, everybody must begin somewhere. Uh, Even Jesus' disciples uh, asked him, Lord, teach us to pray, right? That was Luke 11. And then he gave them the, what we know to be the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but the Lord's Prayer itself is not the only thing that encapsulates all that Jesus taught about prayer. Um, and one of the most common themes, um, I don't know if that's the right word, but one of the most common themes that we have in the teachings of Jesus in his life and ministry on the subject of prayer is something that I think is rather misunderstood in uh, Christian circles today. Jesus told the disciples that when they asked for things, they should ask the Father in my name. Right? He says, if you ask for anything in my name, etc. And so, what is that, you know, in Jesus' name, how, what sense do you have of that word? How is it kind of used in our prayers, you think? Close them out. It's our sign-off, right? Sincerely, Rob. Do we we put a whole lot more effort or thought into it? You know, as a whole, do we consciously think when we pray, what do we mean that we're praying in Jesus' name? Is that Is that really just our our sign-off? Does it mean that asking something in Jesus' name gives the prayer an extra boost of sorts? Sort of helps it get past that ever-difficult ceiling? Does does it somehow increase the chances that the prayer will be heard or, or answered? Is it a magical formula that guarantees we will receive whatever we ask, no matter what, as long as you pray in his name? I remember as a child thinking that it it meant if you didn't add these words to the end of the prayer, that the prayer was somehow illegitimate, that it was not heard by God if I didn't amend it with in Jesus' name. Yeah, Ken. <laughs> yeah, it cancels out. You hear a little <gasps> gasp from people. <laughs> people are silently adding it for you in Jesus' name. He didn't mean it. You know, I think, too, it's interesting uh, on a, a little bit of a different note that... Um, you know, there's something worthwhile about saying it because it, it seems that, you know, when you watch television or things, you'll hear people pray a lot, right? But you don't hear Jesus' name. And so, we're, you know, I remember, you know, at, in times past thinking if, you, if, you, if someone said in your name that they're, you know, trying to cover up like, I don't want people to know I'm <laughs> praying to Jesus. So I'm just going to say your name and not be 
<laughs> explicit. And so we can sit here and, and, and probably most of us agree that that's, that's a sh- pretty shallow way of thinking about prayer. Well, obviously, it, it's not, it doesn't just require, that's not like the password that, you know, God is, you know, he's reading, you know, his pray, the prayers come up to him in little sheets of paper, and he doesn't see in Jesus' name at the bottom. He just crumples it up and throws it away or something. It's not, it doesn't work like that. But, as I, I asked earlier, I, I do wonder how many of us pray in the manner intended in Jesus' instruction when he says to pray in his name. And so rather than simply, you know, using, you know, the phrase, as, as Rob said, this sort of just way to end, like, I don't really have anything else to say, so in Jesus' name. We sort of close out our prayers. We could have written, you could have said sincerely or warmest regards, whatever. We treat it the same way, I think. We don't maybe realize what it means to pray in his name. The phrase seems to be so elusive to many in our day. Its meaning has simply become lost in the Christianese in which we're all so fluent. And so, if we're going to recover a proper understanding of Jesus' words when he says, ask for anything in my name, we should turn to Scripture. And so, how is the phrase used in Scripture? This is not necessarily an exhaustive or comprehensive uh, list. These are just a few texts that give us a sampling of the way that that phrase is used. Would somebody look up uh, Matthew 18, 5? Um, who wants that one? We'll do it this way. Okay, Mom. Um, and somebody, Matthew 18, 20. Uh, Adam, you guys can fight over it. Um, Mark nine thirty nine, Tris, and uh, forty one. Nine thirty nine and forty one. Yep, and then uh, John fourteen twenty six. Last one, Lee. Okay, so listen as we hear these read for the way. What's going on? What is the situation in which Jesus is imploring? Or, or exhorting his people to do something in his name. Uh, I think, Mom, you have the first one, Matthew 18, 5. Yep. Okay, so ever, whoever receives one who is like a child in my name, he receives me. Uh, 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We looked at that one. Nick looked at that one a couple, couple weeks ago, um, as one of our verses for this. But it's not where we are today. The next one was uh, Mark Tris, I think Mark nine. Yeah. Okay, and then Lee, fourteen twenty six from John. 
Yeah, good, thanks. So we have the, this kind of wide range of things being done. We have welcoming disciples who are like little children in the name of Jesus. We are assembling together for judicial action in the name of Jesus. He spoke of miracles being done, cups of water being given, and even God sending the Father, sending the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And so apparently Jesus had much more in mind than prayer when he spoke about the power of his name. And so what does it what does it mean to do something in the name of Jesus? What does it mean to do anything in the name of Jesus? What do you think? So we do it in attempting to show the love of Christ. authority of that name. We're doing it as representatives of that name. One author says it this way. He says, we do these things, whatever it is that we're doing, if we're doing something in the name of Jesus, we do it in a manner that is consistent with who Christ is, what he taught, and all that he stands for, his kingdom purposes. It is to do them in accordance with God's will, ultimately for God's glory. And so with that, it's, it's very important, vitally important, that we, that we remember this as we consider what Jesus means when he speaks of praying for something in his name. And so with that, I, I want to turn our eyes to the passage where, uh, one, of the, one of the passages where these words are, are uttered concerning prayer. This is John 14, verses 12 through uh, 14. And if someone would read that for us, we will be off and running. You got it? Okay. Thank you. So, as we, and so he says, if you ask anything, ask for anything in my name, I will do it. That's a pretty, pretty sweet deal, right? If we're going to understand what he means, though, we should back up a little bit and consider the what of the passage? Starts with a C. Context. Context, context, context. John 13 through 16 is John's account of the Last Supper um, and the conversation that takes place therein. Chapter 13 ends with Judas leaving the room to betray Jesus, and then Jesus foretells his death again. 
And our great friend Peter uh, responds to Jesus' prophecy of his death by saying, Lord, I will go with you to the grave. I will lay my life down for you, at least with you. And then Jesus says that rather than laying his life down for him this night, Peter will deny him three times even before the rooster crows. And, and so that's how chapter 13 ends. Uh, uh, he's sent Judas out. There's probably there's some confusion, really. They thought he was just, you know, going to do some good work. But uh, chapter 13 ends on a, a rather somber note, a um, troubling note. But then Jesus says in 14.1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he tells them that he's, he's going to prepare a place for them. There are many rooms in this place, in his father's mansion. And he says, since I'm going to prepare a place for you, I will surely come back and bring you to be with me where I am. And then he closes uh, that statement with this interesting uh, word. He says, you know the way to where I am going. But Thomas steps up and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way to get there? And then Jesus responds with the ever-famous and beloved words in 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Thomas says, Lord, we, we don't know the way. We don't even know where you're going. How are we supposed to get there? How are we supposed to know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. In no uncertain terms, Jesus tells his disciples here that he is the path upon which they must walk. He is the gate, the door. He is their entrance to God. If they want to know how to get to the Father, they must come through and with Jesus. Now, I think probably most of us in here could quote John 14, 6. But I am curious how many of us could quote John 14, 7. He says, anybody want to give it a shot? Yeah, you can read it. Yeah, so he said, uh, Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So now it's Philip's turn. And I'm not quite sure what Philip makes of that statement, but he apparently didn't understand it because he then makes immediately this request. Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus appropriately responds, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not 
believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And so, I mean, we, we sympathize with Philip and Thomas and these, these questions, and I don't, in any sense of the word, I don't think they're all bad questions. There's, there's unbelief there. There's lack of understanding. They've got Jesus standing in front of them, and they, they just don't quite get it. He says, uh, if you know me, you know the Father, but you know me. And so you know the Father, and you've seen the Father. And then Philip says, just show us the Father. I am, Jesus says. I am showing you. And so then that brings us to his words in 14.12 that we began with earlier. And Jesus says something in verse 12 that I think is probably pretty confusing on the surface. Surface, It's even quite astonishing. What was, anybody picking out what phrase I'm thinking of? What's the really odd part in that verse? Yeah, (laughs) he says, whoever believes in me, he will do these works, and greater works than these he will do. Right? The Father who dwells in Jesus, he said, is doing his works. And then he says, believe me, uh, believe me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The works that I do, he says, should be cause enough for you to believe me that I am who I say that I am. But then he says that whoever believes in me will not only do these works, but will do greater works. And this could probably easily have been been the part of this text that we focused on for the whole time. Um, misused in charismatic circles all the time. Um, But we have to be brief. So what does it mean? What does Jesus mean that he says, greater works will the one who believes in me do? Is he saying that that his followers will have more supernatural power than he does? That they will perform more astonishing and wonderful works than he does? Okay, moving on. Um, yeah, so if you didn't hear what Lee said, basically that 
it's not that there's it's not just that there's merely a greater number because John would have Jesus or John you know John would have had a a word for more right. It's not necessarily that he's simply saying the disciples are just because there's more of them, they'll do more works. Certainly not saying that they're going to be more impressive works because Jesus, he was raising people from the dead, walking on water. He was healing lepers. He was, he raised, he raised himself from the dead. Like, um, and so it's hard to imagine what that could possibly mean that someone would do greater works than these in the sense of that they're, the wow factor is is ramped up. Yeah, and so I think, and I don't, I don't know if I made it clear. I thought what Lee said was good earlier. Now we're sort of bringing it together. The key to interpreting this phrase, greater works, is linking it with the final phrase, because I am going to the Father. Upon Jesus' return to the Father, which will happen in his death, resurrection, and exaltation, they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which will have major implications for them and their future ministry. Not only will the Holy Spirit supernaturally empower these sinful men and empower their ministry, but because Jesus has returned to the Father, they will have the distinct advantage of hindsight. And they will be able to point back to the finished work of Christ who will have died and risen again by that time. And so, the picture of, this picture of Christ and the purpose of His coming will be fuller than what early believers understood during Christ's earthly ministry. During His ministry, it was somewhat veiled. Even His disciples, right in front of Him, show us the Father, and that's enough, Jesus. Hey, Philip, I just told you. If you've seen me, you've seen me. So the clarity, which I think this is what Lee was getting at, the clarity along with the Spirit's power will result in many more converts than were seen during the earthly days of Jesus. And in this sense, the good news of the gospel will be more widespread. And so here then is what the greater works mean. The number of physical miracles that were performed by Jesus will pale in comparison to the number of spiritual miracles that will take place when both Jews and Gentiles are converted to Christ in this spirit-filled church age. D.A. Carson put it this way. In short, the works that the disciples perform after the resurrection are greater than those done by Jesus before his death, insofar as the former belonged to an age of clarity and power introduced by Jesus' sacrifice and exaltation. So that, to date, is, is the most helpful 
way that I've, you know, heard that, that verse explained. Um, any questions or comments on that before we, we bring it sort of to a close as we really look at the text that we're supposed to be looking at? Okay, so it is within this new era of ministry that Jesus offers this help that we read earlier. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So in other words, this ministry is aided by answered prayer. The era of greater works as made possible by the clarity and power that comes with the crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended Lord is one that is marked by answered prayer. As prayers are made in Jesus' name. These prayers, as, as we've said, are made in accordance with the will of God through the person of Jesus Christ as our mediator and great high priest before God for the glory of God. And so it's important that we understand the statements of Jesus concerning prayer appropriately. It's easy to see passages like this and misunderstand what Jesus says when he says, ask for anything. And I don't want to unnecessarily restrict the scope of the phrase, because it sounds pretty broad, pretty general, ask for anything. But does he really mean, in every sense of the word, ask for anything? I don't think so. I don't think he's saying that it doesn't matter what you ask for, how you ask it, when you ask it, or anything, you're going to get it. And we see that we get this help. Matthew 7, 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And, the one, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And so just as long as you're persistent enough, you'll get whatever you want. The new car or house or the raise, the promotion, the child. You'll get married. Whatever you want, just ask and you'll get it. But that seems very unlikely. And uh, James, the brother of our Lord, even uh, he clarifies this in James 4. He says, what causes quarrels... And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And we're all like, yeah, yeah. All you got to do is ask. All you, you got to do is ask. But then he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. John writes in 1 John, he says, this is the confidence that we have toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Aren't we usually inclined to ask for things according to our own will? We ask for things that we, we know, we know what's best. 
How do we find ourselves praying, or how often, rather, do we find ourselves praying for healing for others and ourselves, infirmities, discomfort? Is it wrong to pray for those things? Is it wrong to pray for the sick? Is it wrong to pray for physical ailments and issues? No. But what is it that takes up the majority of our time in prayer? Do our prayers essentially consist of requests that God heal this or that or take this or that pain away? Or do they essentially consist of uh, big prayers, not long prayers, but big prayers? Spiritual prayers, prayers that will make the devils of hell quake with fear. Uh, it was uh, said that, um, said of John Knox, that uh, his prayers uh, were feared more than any, any army on earth. Do your prayers display trust, teachableness, and reliance upon God? Do they display a focus on yourself or others? Do they display a reverence and humility toward God? Do they display a desire to see people to come to know Jesus? Do they display selfishness or selflessness? Who is at the center of our prayers? Us or God? All right. Um, any, any questions, comments before we, we close? We don't, just a minute or so. Yeah. Yeah, that's what Jesus does in the garden, right? I mean, think about what Jesus, uh, he had, it had been decided well before the garden in eternity past what he would do. But he, in great honesty before God, says, Lord, if there is any way for this cup to pass from me, take it away but not what I will, but what you will. Are we strong-arming God in our prayers? We can't do that. We shouldn't try. You know, we, we are to present our, our, our needs and our wants, our desires before God, trusting that He will answer them in the way that's best for us. I mean, you guys who, you know, parents in here, right? Are there any good thing that you don't want to give your kids? No. But, so if they, you know, if your kids ask for something, they might ask for the wrong thing. They might ask in the wrong way. They might ask perhaps for the wrong reasons that would be evident or at the wrong time. But 
surely, you know, Jesus says, if, if we who are evil, you know, people who are evil know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? What's the essence? And so our goal in prayer to close is to see God glorified no matter what. Our goal should be to see things His way so that our wills align with His. And once this happens, our prayers are filled with power. They will be answered, and with confidence we can say, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. And this is what it means to ask for something in Jesus' name. And so it's safe to say, praying His name is not a mere mechanical phrase that we can invoke simply by saying that any and all requests we make are heard by God. Just period. Neither does it have anything to do with giving our prayers an extra boost to heaven so that they can find additional favor with God. It's not a wild card that can be played so that we can forward a personal agenda and force God's hand on anything that's not part of His plan. It's seeking God's face and seeking to align um, our wills with His and asking uh, for His help. Um, all right. We need to uh, close in, in prayer. Father, thank You for the time that we've had to discuss Your Word, to discuss prayer. And I, I pray, God, that we would, uh, our prayers would, would grow to be great, robust, uh, full, Spirit-filled prayers that seek not our own advantage and our own gain and our own good, but would seek the glory of Christ, would seek the good of others. Um, And so help us, Lord. Teach us from your word to pray better, to pray more sincerely, to pray for the things that we should, and and not to pray for the things that we shouldn't. Help us, O Lord. Um, Be with us now as we we gather together for corporate worship. And um, be with Russ as he preaches. Fill him with great power, I pray, and clarity of mind as he brings your word to us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.